this is where the early planning is taking place for our so-called uh, Disney World project. There is something for everyone in this magic kingdom. It is a world in which make-believe has its own reality. This fairyland structure is all the romantic castles of all the ages rolled into one. And every hour that tolls on its magic clock is an enchanted time. There could hardly be anything more romantic than a late supper and dancing on a privately chartered cruise over the calm waters of Bay Lake. But to literally top off the evening, the top of the world lounge of the contemporary resort, the highest spot in Walt Disney World, is the place to go. One of the most unusual features of this ultra-modern resort is the manner in which monorail passengers arrive. Entering high in the air, they are taken right into a spectacular open mall lobby called the Grand Canyon Concourse. You can fly to a magic kingdom that's right outside your hotel window. To Walt Disney World in Florida. On Eastern, the airline of Walt Disney World. The airline that believes dreams really can come true. The wings of man. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 144 for the week of November 8th, 2009. Thank you for tuning in once again. Join me this week as we journey aboard my Walt Disney World Wayback Machine to a year instead of to a specific attraction. And this week, we're going to set the dials to 1973. We'll look at Walt Disney World less than two years after it opened and visit the Magic Kingdom and many of its now extinct attractions, take the monorail to the only two resorts on the loop, and look at some things that we thought were on their way yet never came to be. I'll have some announcements at the end of the show, including a few ways you can help before playing more of your voicemails. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Right now, we're leaving the world of today behind. So if your imagination is ready, here we go. During some of my recent research trips to Walt Disney World for a project that I'm working on, I spent a great deal of time just wandering, especially through the Magic Kingdom. And there, a lot of my childhood memories were rekindled because I thought back to walking down Main Street with my parents in tow and just sort of marveling at the sights and the sounds and even as a kid, the food and things like the House of Magic. So I got to thinking that on this installment of my Walt Disney World Wayback Machine, I wanted to focus on a time when the Magic Kingdom was still sort of in its relative infancy and also I want to focus on a wonderful and extinct Main Street USA attraction instead of just 
one time and one place and one attraction. Um, and um, and it got me thinking, you know, which is always dangerous, and thinking about the Wayback Machine. And uh, I, I thought that we would try something a little bit different this time. And joining me, as always, with uh, quarters and balloons and probably food in hand is Ryan Wilson from the Main Street Gazette. And Ryan, I want to welcome you back, as always. It's great to be back. And I got the popcorn already, so we're ready to go. Awesome. And like I said, Ryan, we, we talked about this. This is going to be something a little bit different for us. Normally, we focus on a single attraction or a single pavilion. And I thought it would be cool to try and focus on a specific time. Um, and again, I, I look back to when I started having some of my earliest memories of Walt Disney World. So I'm going to borrow some of those quarters from you because I want to turn the Wayback Machine to 1973. And again, Walt Disney World, really just the Magic Kingdom, two years old. Do I even bother asking you how old, if you were at old <laughs> at all at that point? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I said this a little while ago to someone that I wasn't born yet, which is scary because going through all this and looking at all the documents and photos and all of that, I almost feel like I was there at some point in that era. And I know my parents know I wasn't, but it, it, it has a life of its own in that time. And so, yeah, this will be a unique experience. And so I'm, I'm interested to see how this vista of Walt Disney World turns out. You're going to be creating memories as we do, be like, yes, I remember being there. And, and clearly you weren't. So. <laughs> but let's put, um, let's put this in perspective for you. And, and I'm going to feel old and I hope I don't do it to anybody else of what sort of was going on in 1973. Um, Ryan, back then, if you wanted to buy a house, you needed about $32,500 to do it, which was really a lot at the time because the average income per year was 12900 So <laughs> um, everything in context. Gas exactly. was $0.40. Cents. Um, do you even remember hearing of something called Skylab? You know, it sounds yes. I, I know about Skylab. <laughs> yes, besides Disney, you know, I grew up in Central Florida. You have Disney, you have NASA. Okay, <laughs> I, I'm of that era, so I do know at least a little bit about Skylab. From a Disney perspective, um, Robin Hood is released into theaters. Which when I that's when I read, I was like, wow, I really am old. Um, you probably saw them in reruns. The Odd Couple. I was a huge fan of that, even at the tender age of five or so. Um, and I'm sure you remember some of the, the classic ditties from back then. Crocodile Rock, Dancing Machine, Lady Marmalade, Little Fifth of Beethoven. Any of these things ringing a bell? They, they, they seem vaguely familiar, you know. I mean, it, it may have been a little before my time, but it, it was definitely when my parents were adults. So it was in my household for the next 20 years. So, it, yeah, it's ringing a little bit of a bell. All right. So we'll move from a little Tony Orlando and Dawn and, and tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree Back even farther to the ragtime sounds of Main Street USA, because obviously we're in 1973. The only thing that's there is the Magic Kingdom. There's no Epcot, no Blizzard Beach, no Grand Floridian, no Port Orleans. I mean, the Magic Kingdom, Ryan, really, it is Walt Disney World. I mean, that's what you're coming down there for. Even looking back at the guide maps from, from this time period, it was your guide to Walt Disney World. But it was really just the yeah the Magic Kingdom maps land by land of you know Adventureland to land Frontierland and a big picture of Cinderella Castle on the front. Yeah, and um, 
you know, we look back and we, we think about the size and the scope of Walt Disney World now, forgetting that for many people, myself and my family included, this is where we vacationed still for four, five, six, seven days at a time. And there was two hotels and there was, you know, some, we'll talk about some of the outside the park things to do, but relative to what we have now, there wasn't a lot. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to mention was getting there, you know, talking about getting to Walt Disney World, because even Florida at that point, very, very, very different. Um, and, and getting there was different as well, because Orlando, which is MCO, used to be McCoy Jetport, which was an old Air Force base. But you've, I'm sure you've heard of the Stallport, S-T-O-L, the short takeoff and landing. That was a runway uh, sort of by where the monorail beams are as you head towards the Magic Kingdom. That was a short uh, a short takeoff runway. And there was actually a, a commercial airline called Shawnee Airlines that ran about 20-seat uh, prop planes back and forth. So you actually could fly right into Walt Disney World. Never, I never have, obviously. Uh, I've never really seen any pictures of it. But I do know that uh, celebrities did fly in that way. And obviously other people did as well. How cool would that have been to be flying right in over the Magic Kingdom and landing right next to the parking lot? Like I say, see the contemporary as you as you land as those wheels come down. This was definitely one of those where they were trying to pull in, you know, this exclusive nature nature of the Vacation Kingdom, and say, have our own little airport you can come in on, and we'll take you right to your hotel. It was, it was you know, the ultimate vacation, but it didn't last very long, and not very many people, like you said were really the the hallmark of that experience. Yeah, and of course, you'd be flying in. you got the hustle playing in the background. I'm, I know, I'm showing my age. <laughs> <laughs> and let's, so let's talk about getting in. I wanted to sort of put in context some of the, uh, the incomes and some dollar figures because I wanted to talk about getting into Walt Disney World because at that time, it was very different than how we get in now. There was no Magic Your Way. There was no annual passport. Um, I do know at one time, and this was always my father's biggest regret, was they sold lifetime passes. And I have, that's sort of my holy grail of collectibles because I have yet to see one. But you had to buy a general admission ticket. And they came in three sort of levels. There was an adult, a child, and there was also a junior. Um, you were a child if you were 3 to 11. You were a junior if you were 12 to 17. Awkward years. <laughs> that's what they might as well call it the awkward year ticket. And you were yes. an adult um, 18 and up. So an adult general admission ticket to walk in the door of Walt Disney World cost you $4.50. Yeah, and, and with the junior, it was $3.50. I mean, you can't even get lunch kingdom for that these days. I think that's a smart water. That may be smart water right there, so... But yeah, it got you into the park. Um, it also lets you use all the transportation system, um, all the free shows and, and sort of the exhibits and the performers that were going on. And we'll talk about that because, again, they were using the ABCD ticket bo- books or coupon books, as they were called. So in addition to your general admission, you had to buy tickets. Um, and again, we can talk about the, the genesis of, of ticketing at Walt Disney World really for a whole separate show but there were A, B, C, and D, and E, eventually tickets, depending on the popularity of the attraction. Obviously, the E tickets were the, the headliners. The A tickets, not so much. The Jitney, maybe, things like that. But you could buy adventure books. And I, and I, I remember, as a kid, 
going up to the kiosk across from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which is still there outside Pooh's Playful Spot, to buy an extra ticket book before we were leaving because I desperately had to ride 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea again. I'm sure my dad really appreciated that. But again, for about for under $7 for an adult, you could get an A ticket, a B ticket, two C tickets, four D tickets, and four E tickets. That And, and obviously they didn't expire. Right, and they ran in things, you know, in packages packages of 12 and those ticket booths they were they were all over the magic kingdom because they knew someone like lou mangello was going to come up and be like i need twenty thousand leagues one more time before i before i hit the door <laughs> and i've even picked up copies of these old things for my uh family from my aunts and my grandma's mothers and stuff that were basically full except for one because of that last ride you had to get in yeah and and i love having those as a collectibles one of my favorite collectibles not because it's certainly the most valuable but just one that has meaning for me is an e-ticket that i have hanging on the wall of my office um whether it's the nostalgia whether it's the memories uh whether it was begging my father for a couple more quarters so we can ride twenty thousand leagues one more time um or hall of presidents you know hall of presidents was an e-ticket attraction again separate conversation separate podcast (laughs) altogether um but but you're right with the e-tickets they were so popular you know it was these were such your headliner attractions. I mean, it's why the name stuck, sticks around to this day. When you hear people talking about the new e-ticket attraction, it's because it's the, it's new. It's the biggest, grandest thing you've ever seen, and you want to do it as often as you can. Right. And there was one thing that I saw that I never remember doing, um, and my parents didn't either. I actually called them up to ask them if they remember doing this. But they had guided tours, and for seven fifty for an adult or four fifty for a child who was three to eleven. You could get, obviously, the same thing. You'd get the admission to the Magic Kingdom. You'd also get to ride five attractions, uh, with a, with including two e-coupons, with a tour guide who would take you on, I almost sang it, a three-hour tour of the Magic Kingdom for, again, under 10 bucks. Yeah, and you, you think of today where you have the keys to the kingdom and all of these tours... But for seven fifty, you were getting a similar type of experience. Absolutely, and uh, I don't know when they stopped doing that. And if anybody ever did that, if they have recollections of ever doing that, uh, I'd love to hear more. I'd love to hear somebody call into the voicemail because, according to the guidebook uh, and the guide map, it says it was sort of a very informal tour. I guess you sort of picked and chose or, or talked to the cast member, and they would sort of make recommendations for you of where you would go on your tour. And pick those five attractions out over three three hours, seven fifty. Man, even if I am only pulling in twelve thousand dollars a year, I think that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, absolutely, it's definitely you're definitely gonna get the value for your dollar on that kind of a tour. Considering you know, if very well may have been tailored to what you want to see. If you were more of a Tomorrowland kind of family, then maybe you don't want to go see It's a Small World or Peter Pan. Very true. But you know, I, there was one thing I, I wanted to mention even before we got into the Magic Kingdom, and again, we, we talked briefly about how the landscape was very different. Remember, you just have the Polynesian across the way, you've got the Contemporary, there is no Grand Floridian, they haven't even really started doing anything with the pad site for what at the time was going to be a very different theme resort, but there was something out on the Seven Seas Lagoon called the Wonderful World of Water Ski Show, and there was bleachers and places to sit and sort of like a like a picnic area on grass that you could watch this water ski show 
right on the Seven Seas Lagoon. And they did all kinds of jumps and flips and acts. And I remember seeing Goofy being out there dressed in full Goofy water ski regalia, whatever you call it, uh, doing a water ski show. I mean, talk about one of those unique things that we don't have anymore. And it was one of those things that drew, you know, Walt to the Walt Disney World site was because it had so much water. Make that so many different experiences inside the parks, outside the parks, everywhere. And I've seen pictures of, you know, Donald and Goofy and out there on skis in their full, you know, life vest costume kind of things. It cracks me up because I know how, how heavy and hot those costumes are on a regular day in Fantasyland. I can't imagine when you add water to that equation what those people must exactly. be going. <laughs> exactly, but it's very interesting when you look back and you wonder if something like that would play now. You know, would something like that attract guests now? Certainly we have the electrical water pageant, which has run for eons. I mean, almost since since day one, certainly since uh, the early 70s. And, and that's sort of a staple of the nighttime entertainment that you can watch. But would something like that water ski show, whether it was free or otherwise, attract people out of the park or out of the resort to look out onto uh, onto la- the lagoon to see something like that? I think it's one of those things you, I, I don't know that we'll ever know, but you're right. I mean, if you're trying to pull people out of the park, is that water show going to pull them in? And at that point, where do you showcase that? Because you had the ferry boats, all the different boat launches from, you know, at the time there were three resorts, you know, when you got Fort Wilderness, Polynesian, and the Contemporary, but now you have to add in the Grand Floridian and the Wilderness Lodge. What kind of traffic are you creating on that waterway? And does it offset enough to bring out the guests? Right. I mean, and they did experiment with something like that. They did do a daytime water show, remember, over at World Showcase Lagoon um, in oh, I remember. But, um, yeah, but imagine the views maybe from the top of Bay Lake Tower, if you could see it from there, if they did it over on uh, on Bay Lake somewhere. Ah, anyway, yeah. we're speculating, but let's move on because there's a lot to see and a lot not to see in Walt Disney World and the Magic Kingdom in 1973. And I'm specifically going to skip... Main Street USA. We're going to kind of jump oh. forward. Yeah, I know. Tragedy of all tragedy. But we're going to come because I want to spend a little bit more time talking about Main Street and an attraction specifically uh, that I wanted to kind of highlight that I have memories of and I think a lot of other people might uh, or might be sad that they missed. But let's sort of move our way around the hub. And I think this is going to be interesting, Ryan, because as we start talking about lands like Adventureland, and specifically Tomorrowland, one of the first things that comes to mind when I think of Adventureland in early 1973 was not what was there, but what wasn't there. No, if, it, if you look at Adventureland now, consider where the Enchanted Tiki Room is and stop right there. Yep. Exactly right. There was no Caribbean Plaza. There was no Pirates of the Caribbean. And, and I'm sure many people are familiar with the story about how when Walt Disney World first opened, there was no Pirates of the Caribbean, nor were there plans for a Pirates of the Caribbean. Disney felt that because of the proximity to the Caribbean, uh, stories of pirates might not be all that exotic for Adventureland or intriguing to guests. Uh, Instead, and again, I'm going to preface this by saying, this is a whole separate show. Clearly, when I say things like Thunder Mesa and the Western River Expedition, that was going to be it. That was going to be the big draw on that side of the park. 
and this was something that we talked about b- before we we on the air that we could just go on and on and on about what Thunder Mesa was going to be in the Western River in that whole entire area and the plans that went back even before the parks opened and how that was shifted because of the for Pirates of the Caribbean and how everyone wanted the pirates even though they were already living in that vicinity. Yeah, and, and this, the, we will obviously need to cover how pirates came to be and what it ended up coming to be because the, as the story goes, guests came to Walt Disney World hearing of Pirates of the Caribbean, whether it was from the TV shows talking about Disneyland or having been visitors at Disneyland and they came in looking for it, going to guest relations and were understandably upset that it wasn't there. Uh, Disney at one point had to very quickly decide to abandon Thunder Mesa, much to the dismay of people like Mark Davis, and very quickly build in this dead space behind the Tiki Room and behind the Jungle Cruise where it really just dead ended a an abridged version, really, of Pirates of the Caribbean. Mark Davis says, okay, you're going to take Thunder Mesa away from me. I want something bigger and better. Unfortunately, he got something smaller. And if you want to compare apples to apples, many people might say maybe not quite as long or quite as good in some respects as the Disneyland version. Absolutely right. I've, I've seen both and it, it is longer in Disneyland and there's so much more some story really that it, it does kind of pale in comparison. On the plus side, the queue in Florida with its pirates playing chess and the whole f- does tend to lend itself a little bit more back to Florida's version. I agree, and I and I love the queue in Walt Disney World. Although the attraction in Disneyland is absolutely spectacular, and obviously that's that's a con- we we've talked about that on the why every Walt Disney World fan needs to visit Disneyland show back on a, episode maybe fifty three or fifty eight or so uh, when when we talk about pirates and really have to dedicate a show or two to pirates, we can talk about that some more. But let's talk about what there was in Adventureland as we walk from the hub. And first and foremost, two words for you, and we're going to start off with food, Adventureland Veranda Restaurant. Oh, we okay, so my three. Heart. So three words, Adventureland Veranda Restaurant. Yeah, this, for those who don't know, this was right when you crossed over into Adventureland. It's now just the, the facades, the you know, Adventure Victorian facades, uh, but that was the veranda back then. Yeah, and it was a counter service restaurant. Um, I talk about this in my audio guide to Adventureland really in a lot more detail because we don't want this to be a nine-hour show, although it very easily could be. Uh, but it was unique in many respects, first of all, because uh, it was it was very beautiful, and it still is inside. But they had things – it was sponsored by Kiko Man at one point, and they had things like a teriyaki burger, and they had hot dogs with, with very different types of toppings on it. Uh, that venue, Ryan, still sits there, for the most part unused, other than for a couple of character meet and greets, maybe around Halloween time. Although, who knows, maybe not necessarily for long. I'm just saying. But but you're right. This was Adventureland's like marquee dining experience. You had all these different flavors that we explored in other parks and other restaurants. But at the time... Like we said, Magic Kingdom was it. This was our chance to get that that Pacific, you know, in our mouth, so to speak. Exactly. And there was actually um, there was a bunch of different places to 
snack, really, in Adventureland. The Veranda Juice Bar, which is now Aloha Isle, again was also sponsored by Kiko Man. Didn't have Dole Whips, obviously, because it wasn't sponsored by Dole back then, but they did have a lot of fruit juices. Obviously, if you went around the corner a little bit farther, uh, past some of the stores, the Sunshine Tree Terrace with my friend the Orange Bird was there. That was sponsored by the Florida Citrus Growers. Um, There was also a little place called the Oasis, which was by the Swiss Family Treehouse. So no place, like today, no place to sit down and eat, but at least you had that counter service restaurant with the Adventureland Veranda. Right. You had a lot of places just to grab some bites to eat and go. But this being the Magic Kingdom in the 70s, everyone's really, they wanted you to keep going. They wanted you to keep finding the experiences. Yeah. And again, if you could imagine the landscape here being so very different because remember there was like it or not there was no aladdin's magic carpet in the center so you had this wide plaza area really with planters and benches and trees and a little bit more lush in certain areas but you kind of had a straight shot as you walked through past the treehouse right down to the um to the enchanted tiki birds right it was a, it was an unobstructed view which I would like to see again, but that's neither here nor there. Not uh, a fan of the uh, of the carpets. Are you? It's not that I'm not a fan. I'm just more of a fan of the just <laughs> just for my two cents. But it, and it had its two walkways to right there. But it was it was a very straight shot, and the architecture all stayed in South Pacific, you know, Victorian feel. With a lot, you consider how much foliage is there now. All those trees, all those brushes were a lot shorter back in 1973. Great point. And that's something I was going to bring up when we talked about Liberty Square because very, very different landscape there when you start looking at from Frontierland and you can see a straight shot out to the Haunted Mansion, which now is is very much an obstructed view. Uh, One of the other things before we leave Adventureland that I really liked uh, was, and still to this day to a certain degree, the variety of stores and shopping experiences there because they were very, very well-themed and had a variety of unique items as, as the Magic Kingdom did, I think, for the most part back in the early 70s. You had things like the Tropic Toppers, which really was a store that sold a variety of different hats and handbags and purses. Oriental Imports, obviously, as the name suggests, had a lot of imported, authentic um, types of, of souvenirs and tchotchkes for lack of a better word from the orient there was the magic carpet the tiki tropic shop the traders of timbuktu and colonel hathies nice reference to uh to the jungle book there as well yeah and all of these were like you said they were so intricate into their theme you know the the magic carpet had spools of of thread and you know just matched what they were selling and it was just a great sense of time and space yeah, and the one other thing too, and I and I do remember this as a child, was the Adventureland Steel Drum Band was a fixture in this part of the Magic Kingdom. And I loved the music and I loved the costumes and I loved the fact that there was, and we'll talk about this more as we, we go through the Magic Kingdom, there was a lot and a, a wide variety of live entertainment at, at this time in Walt Disney World. Right, the kind of things that now we would see at the the peak times of year when they're trying to entertain guests who are in two-hour lines for Thunder Mountain was prevalent throughout the parks at this time. And I remember the steel drum, but I, my age is showing again because I remember from the Caribbean Plaza a couple of years later 
when it was JP it, and the Silver Stars. Yes, and it just it's but it's still one of those one of those things that it's typical Adventureland that that's what you think of when you see Adventureland. Absolutely, and because Caribbean Plaza did not exist, because you basically had at one point had the Jungle Cruise to your left and the Sunshine Pavilion to your right. The only way to sort of get out through here was by that now covered breezeway to Frontierland and eventually to Liberty Square. Maybe that's a good sort of segue over to talk about those two lands and Frontierland being first. Again, two very different landscape here because there were things that are gone that I that I miss and things that were just sort of coming to be because it was in 1973, around May or so, when Tom Sawyer Island first opened. That was not an opening day attraction. No, it was it when Frontierland opened. It had very limited attractions. It had your Country Bear Jamboree, the the Diamond Horseshoe Review, and the train station, the Walt Disney World train station, which looked drastically different than what we know of at the train station today. Right, because when they were going to build Splash Mountain, the train station had to go away. the the uh, The railroad actually went backwards at one point because that the train station wasn't there. But you're right, there wasn't really a lot to do there as things like Tom Sawyer Island um, was was being built. Obviously, there was no Big Thunder. There was no Splash Mountain. Country Bear Jamboree, that was the big show. Uh, and at the time, and I think this is very interesting, it had two sponsors. And it was interesting not just because one of the sponsors was Frito-Lay, but the other sponsor was Pepsi-Cola. And again, this was an e-ticket attraction. And you don't really necessarily think of bears and Frito-Lay and Pepsi-Cola, but when you consider how prevalent things like Coca-Cola are in the parks today, to, to try to shift that perspective to it was Pepsi, it, it is a little tricky to look at. Absolutely. I mean, because of just because of how uh, we sort of associate now Coca-Cola with Walt Disney World, but Pepsi-Cola and Frito-Lay very much had a presence, and a lot of this sort of carried over from Disneyland and the corporate sponsorships and the relationships I think that Walt Disney had cultivated back then. But in addition to sponsoring the Country Bear Jamboree, and I don't know if you'll remember this, Ryan, when you exited the Country Bear Jamboree, you did not go outside or go right into Pecos Bills, which again was sponsored by that, but you came out into or right next to, and if you look at the outside facade, the blue facade outside, the mile-long bar. And do you remember that the animatronics... The three animatronic animal heads that were in the Country Bear side were now flipped around and also hung over the mile-long bar. Yeah, you had Biff and Max and all of them hanging out there, and they would talk to you as you came out. And I can even remember if you were sitting in the mile-long bar as a show was getting ready to let out, they actually were telling everyone, you know, get ready, here comes everyone coming out the door. Exactly. And uh, when we say mile-long bar, they serve things like Pepsi and, you know, Fritos, whatever it was. Uh, there was still never any alcohol, nor I think will there ever be any alcohol, which I like, uh, in the Magic Kingdom. But um, that was really it. I mean, there was one store, there was the Frontier Trading Post, and there was also the shooting gallery there, which was a B ticket. You didn't use quarters, you didn't use dimes back then. It was a B ticket attraction, so you actually had to use a coupon in order to shoot at the shooting gallery, which for the most part has remained nearly unchanged for the past almost four decades. Right. The great thing about it back then, though, is they did use the metal BBs to shoot at the targets. And because of how often they had to repaint the targets and the rifles getting 
getting jammed. When they redid it is when they went to the, the light spectrum uh, targets. Exactly. And w- let's talk about something that uh, early in 73 was not here, opens up, I think, spring, maybe early summer, and that was the Davy Crockett Explorer Canoes. And we don't have these, obviously, anymore. They still have them in Disneyland, and I've yet to experience it there. But talk about, arguably, the most unique theme park attraction in Walt Disney World, because this attraction was powered by one thing. Well, lots of things. You and everybody else in the canoe. No track, no motor, no nothing. You you were going to work for this attraction. This is one of those time periods where I would love to sit on the rivers of America and watch the river because back in 73, and this is kind of jumping a little bit over to Liberty Square, but you had the Davy Crockett Explorer canoes, you had the Mike Fink keel boats, and you had two river boats in the waterways around Tom Sawyer's Island. I could only imagine what that would have looked like all with all the people and all the various forms of transportation on that on those rivers. Exactly. And and we really need to do a, a detailed look at the rivers of America themselves because that entire waterway like you said um had many many attractions to it and looked very different and probably would have been a lot more crowded and I would have loved to have seen, you know, the Richard F Irvine, you know, hauling down as a little canoe <laughs> trying to paddle in front of it. But before we move on quickly to Liberty Square, we talked about the landscape and how it looked. Uh, also, how it sounded was different. And I want to talk a little bit about the entertainment because here there was two different types. And you would think Frontierland, you sort of get that Western rootin' tootin' kind of thing. But instead, two of the main entertainment acts in, in the early 70s and in, in this time in 73 was a bluegrass band, which you can see kind of fits, but there was also a mariachi band, a mariachi band that walked around Frontierland. And if you think about Frontierland today, you almost think that that wouldn't fit in that time and place, uh, you know, although you do sort of have that that Spanish influence as you get closer to Caribbean Plaza, um, you think mariachi, you think, you know, El Rio del Tiempo over in Mexico. No, and you're right. You, you wouldn't naturally put those... Ch- when you consider Frontierland, when we first received our Frontierland, with the idea that Thunder Mesa was coming this way, it was very much going to be a Old West, whereas with the addition of Splash Mountain, it kind of changed the flavor of the area a little bit. But with all that that Old West feel, a mariachi band would have been right at home. It's just a little bit tough for us to see it right now. Absolutely. But see, speaking of seeing it, one thing you would be able to see from Frontierland, because... Again, the, the foliage was, was very, very young at this point, and there are wonderful photos out there online where you can look across and you can see the Haunted Mansion, clearly. Remember, there was also no walkway. Remember that the, the walkway we have now, sort of on the banks of the river of, Rivers of America, didn't exist at that point. So there wasn't a lot of those trees, it wasn't built up like that. You had a straight shot across into Liberty Square. I, I believe that that pathway came in when they were building Splash Mountain so they could still get guests over to Thunder Mountain. But at the time, you had no Thunder Mountain. You had no Splash Mountain. And the train left the, the depot in Frontierland. As you got around you know, between those two islands for Tom Sawyer, you could see for, uh, the Haunted Mansion. The, and the short trees weren't really hiding the show building back then. Exactly. And like I said, I mean, think back to it now. Imagine walking towards Frontierland and sort of walking to where the, the representative... Mississippi River sort of runs in between and turning around and looking back 
and all you have to see is that raised plank platform and the shops and the trading posts and the shooting gallery. And in the distance, you've got the Walt Disney World Railroad Station, and that's it. There are no mountains back there at all. No, it was, it was again, just like Adventureland, it was a very abbreviated uh, land to what we have now and what we would gain in the late 80s and early 90s. But as we move over towards Liberty Square, you have two sort of anchor attractions for this section, for sort of the, the west side of the Magic Kingdom. You have two e-ticket attractions here. Clearly, the Haunted Mansion qualifies. And as I alluded to before, the Hall of Presidents in 1973 was an e-ticket attraction. Which you wouldn't think actually it would play that way. It's, you know, if you go now, the crowds are back because they have a renewed interest in the way they've redone the Hall of Presidents. But two years ago, three years ago, those crowds were minuscule compared to what we see now and what you would have seen in 73 as we approach the 1976 bicentennial. Exactly. Uh, and clearly, the Haunted Mansion goes without saying. Uh, its reputation preceded it, obviously, from what was in Disneyland, um, without a doubt, one of, and still, one of the most popular attractions. But again, the the Rivers of America was home to two attractions here. It was a Liberty Square riverboat. And again, the Richard F. Irvine comes in. This year, it opened up with a single riverboat. Then there was the Richard F. Irvine, which was added. Obviously, one of them was destroyed while in dry dock. And you also had another very, very unique on-water experience, no paddling necessary, Ryan, with the Mike Fink keelboats. And this is one of those things that I remember seeing them, and I remember being on them once upon a time when you know I was you know toddling around square. But they were so cool. You know, they... You'd have to almost, you know, they were, it was like an A on, on a canoe, and you paddled the rivers of America. Yeah, and at one point, they were actually used as a transportation system over on the Seven Seas Lagoon. And there's a, uh, there's a, a photograph that I keep seeing online, and I'll have to try and track it down and put it in the show notes, of one of the keelboats running aground um, on, on Bay Lake. So they didn't really use that very, very often, but it was... A ride. I mean, this was an attraction. It wasn't really a transportation system as much as it was a B-ticket attraction. Right. And, you know, it still has its inspiration. You can still see, you know, pictures of the Gully Wumper, models of the Gully Wumper over in uh, the Crockett's Tavern and Fort Wilderness. And the building is still there that was used as the launch for the keelboats. But, yeah, the rest of the keelboats have gone the way of uh, 20,000 leagues to the sea. Be curious to find out whatever happened. And they were probably just destroyed. Uh, I'm sure they were just destroyed at some point because I think nobody realized that anybody in 2009 would be like, oh my God, I'd love to have the Gully Wumper. Again, where I was, yeah, I'm I don't sh- know. I'm, so. I'm sure if they pulled them out of the water, they probably just left them in whatever state they were in the wood that was wet, probably just started to rot. And it's, it's sad. But yeah, you know, those of us today who like, but I have space in my backyard. I, I, I could put it right <laughs> Yeah. D23 Expo auctioned one of those babies. Listen, they got $35,000 for a Peter Pan's flight ride vehicle. I'm sure they could do pretty well with the Gully Wumper or the Birth of May. So. And, and um, you had the $34,000. I, I was close, man. I was right there. I was right there. So. <laughs> but we also come to um, the very first free attraction that we're at least covering as, as we're sort of going around here. And I got to give you know my dad a mention. He loved... Loved, loved. We had to do it every time. 
the Diamond Horseshoe Review. Not because it was free, not because it had can-can girls or because you had to make reservations for it on Main Street, but he just loved this show. And in retrospect, I so wish it was still around because I didn't realize at the time how much I did as well. It's very much that corner of, you know, the building is at the corner of Frontierland and Liberty Square, but the entertainment was that same feel. It was high energy. And like you said, you had to make reservations. It may have been free, but you had to make reservations to get in there because it was very popular and it was just a show to look at. Yeah, and they served food, of course. I mean, actually, you sat down and were able to eat there as well. Uh, The Columbia Harbor House was still there. There was also um, the Liberty Tree Tavern was there as well. Uh, There was a couple of other little quick service places as well on the backside. And if you happen to ever walk behind where um, Ye Old Christmas Shop is, uh, there's a walkway there towards the, the... passageway to Adventureland. It's now used for some meet and greets. I think it's a a smoking area back there. But at one point, there was a quick service place there, and you can still see the building. It's shuttered now. It's sort of an off-white, sort of an eggshell color building. And that was Fife and Drum Refreshments. And then behind that, there was Sleepy Hollow Refreshments as well. The Fife and Drum Refreshments, I... But a few years ago, you and I were were wandering around the square, and we saw this this little thing, and whatever reason we thought it was new and then we go back and we look and you know, since since you know the park began not been in use for for you know two decades and i appreciate you not saying that i made all of us stand there and stare at it for like 20 minutes as i sort of tried to rattle in my mind what this was and why it was here and sneak looks in between the little cracks in between and i think that's what my i was taking the pictures <laughs> i was taking the pictures of the building i can't i don't have any room to talk at that point so and again here too the entertainment screamed Liberty Square. Obviously, you had the Diamond Horseshoe Review. You also had the Liberty Tree Tavern singers that sang outside and I think possibly inside the, the waiting area of Liberty Tree Tavern. But the, the hallmark of Liberty Square was the Fife and Drum Corps. You can see a, a, a little more different version of it by the American Adventure, but they put on... A show. I mean, borderline parade. Remember, they used to have the sons and... Uh, you're not going to remember. Somebody, remember, they used to have the sons and daughters of liberty where they would pick a boy and girl out and they would sort of be the son and daughter of liberty and put on this entire production right there in the middle of what at the point was a very wide open Liberty Square. Right, it's right there. In, and I actually do have some recollections of this, but of where the stockade kind of is now, they would march out and you're right, it was it was a sight to be seen. The fife and drum over in Epcot in front of the American Adventure now is is still spectacular and tugs and heartstrings when I hear it. But this was something on one, uh, just it kicked it up one more notch. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I'm sure um, somebody has home videos that they've posted up on YouTube, um, but it really... It, and again, you talk about with the upcoming bicentennial, it was just appropriate. There was just that spirit of patriotism, and it played out very well. And you mentioned the stockade. We've all had a... So at what point, Ryan, if at any, do you say, okay, I'm way too old for the stockade picture. Ryan Wilson, I'm done. I'm not going to take any more pictures there. I, I think that's, you know, it's, at what point am I done with the Magic Kingdom? I, I don't think you reach that age, you know, especially if you're someone like us who, who thrives on all of this. You never reach that age. You know, it, you're always making you know, goofy faces and you're always taking pictures next to things that any sane person would be like, I can't believe I'm doing this. Absolutely. And certainly 
the Liberty Tree is there as well. And behind it are, and, and I, I love and I so wish I had a better recollection of everything except one of these stores, such unique shops. And we did talk about these when we talked about sort of a, a retrospective and sort of a DSI of the Liberty Square Christmas shop. And I'll link this in the show notes. But the three shops that make up the current Liberty Square Christmas shop were originally three very distinctive shops, one of which was the Silversmith, and that was the one on the far end closest towards uh, the hub. Next to that was an old-world antique store, which had real antiques ranging from small little pocket-sized trinkets up to furniture items in in the thousands and possibly tens of thousands of dollar range. Um, And they also had... Mademoiselle Lafayette's, and I'm going to butcher the French language, I apologize, Parfumerie, where you could not only purchase off-the-shelf perfumes, but have perfumes created for you, have them recorded, so if you ever want to go back and buy your mom her favorite, you know, Miss Ryan Wilson perfume, you could get that same mixture of whatever it was, that honeysuckle and coconut and whatever, jasmine, whatever she mixed in there. And and this is like one of the things where you, we could talk about it forever. But the unique shopping opportunities that were available in the early years of Walt Disney World were extraordinary. It wasn't you know the same merchandise at every store you went into. It was very tailored to a to a niche. It was very specific types of merchandise, and the the amount of the variety of shops were extraordinary. You know, and and with the shops, you know, this was the year in 1973 where we went from. You right over there next to the Haunted Mansion, we had uh, the Yankee Peddler turned into the Yankee Trader, and it was just it was an extraordinary just shopping experiences. And the thing was, and I do remember this as a kid, and and I would ask my parents to sort of dig these pictures out, but I, there's only so much self-deprecating humor that I can I can stand. You could walk into Frontierland, and if that was your thing, if that's what you were into, if you love, if you still love Davy Crockett, even as a kid in the '70s, even you know. You could come out dressed like Davy Crockett. You could have your coonskin hat. You could have your big rifle. You could have your Western wear. You could go to Liberty Square to the tri-cornered hat shop and get that sense of looking like somebody from the fife and drum if that part of American history really appealed to you. And, and I love that. I mean, the same thing held true over in Adventureland. So you did have the, the merchandise was so non-generic. It was so specific to the lands. And I see a lot of that to a certain degree, in Disneyland. I'd love to see more of that still in Walt Disney World, um, but it was very, very much the case in in, in the Magic Kingdom's uh, early years. I, I mean, I was the kid from Frontierland. I had the rifle, and I had the pistol, and I had my coonskin cap, and you know, my homemade Davy Crockett costume with all the fringe and everything, and again, self-deprecating humor aside, uh, it... it it was easy back then to be able to put together these outfits and to really like you were a part of the story of Frontierland or the story of Tomorrowland because of all these little specific spots. Absolutely. Um, and again, I would have loved to have gone back and seen, and, and again, you can see videos and I, and I actually have the album from the record album from the hall of presidents, that storybook album, but to go in there um, when it first opened and, and in the early seventies, see Richard Nixon as the as the president of the United States at the time and see how different it was and see how people reacted to this being an e-ticket attraction, I think would be just very interesting to see. So 
Moving through the breezeway by the Haunted Mansion, by the Yankee Peddler, which is now the Yankee Trader, over to Fantasyland. Um, clearly, Ryan, without a doubt, and still to this day, Fantasyland defines the Magic Kingdom. I mean, it has 10 attractions open in 1973. Um, lots of places to eat, lots of places to shop. Um, and this this one this one hurts a little bit, man, because we've got some old favorites that are that are since long gone. Yeah, this, the, yeah, book ending almost this land. There there's a lot of pieces that y- you can look at and just see I remember when for for almost any of us at this point. Uh, but it was it was the marquee place to go cuz you wanted to go through Cinderella Castle. You wanted to see that ca- and then the storybook lands beyond that. Yeah, and again, the landscape doesn't change very much save obviously for 20,000 leagues under the sea. But we had attractions like the Skyway, which was one of those, I loved it, but I was so scared of it as a kid because I thought I was going to have the bucket that was eventually going to fall off that tiny cable. But you talk about getting amazing, unique views of Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. Uh, I loved the Skyway as a kid, not as a mode of transportation, but really as an attraction. And again, talking about some of these other classic, beloved attractions that are no longer there... Clearly, we mentioned 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That's a show in and of itself. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, May He Rest in Peace. Um, And the Mickey Mouse Review, which again, very popular, very unique, at the very least, simply because of what it represented insofar as the scope and the use of audio-animatronic characters there. You know, every character you could possibly think of from an attraction, or from an attraction, from a film being brought in to play and sing under Maestro Mickey. And you know, we've kind of got a glimmer of that back with, you know, they've made the, the homage to Mickey as the Maestro with Philhar Magic. But this this was a much more in-depth show considering all the technology that had to be employed to to have all these characters sing and dance. Yeah, and it it, it fortunately moved over uh, it went overseas for a while. It recently closed again also to be replaced by Philhar Magic. We had, obviously, the classics. You have Small World. You have Peter Pan's Flight. You have Dumbo, the Carousel, Snow White's Adventures, soon Snow White's Scary Adventures, although it's less scary, which didn't make much sense. Um, And you also had, again, I know it keeps coming back to food, and I apologize, but we'd be remiss. Uh, Pinocchio Village House is there. And then, obviously, King Stephen's Banquet Hall is in the castle. But you've got other corporately sponsored small snack stands like the Troubadour Tavern sponsored by sponsored by Welch's which I remember getting things like the signature grape juice in the plastic juice box that looked like a bunch of grapes and was this the heat getting to me or well you don't remember no somebody I, I do no see I do remember because they had they had all those they had the orange juice and the oranges they had yeah they had several of these and you got them in the in bottles and you know for a kid that's the coolest thing ever because it's not the fruit but it certainly looks like it It, right you had to get it even if you didn't drink it just because you wanted the container so you can you know bring it home and you had things like the round table which was sponsored by borden's the lancers inn uh which was very different that is over where um the friar's nook is now and in the back you had the tournament tent and again too ryan this is going back to some of that entertainment that I was talking about before, because you didn't just have, well, first of all, 
One thing you had in Fantasyland you don't really see now, except for special events and special occasions, you had a lot of Disney characters just sort of wandering around. Just And, and you can see video of the seven dwarfs just sort of meandering around, playing with guests. But you also had in this tent in the back uh, where Ariel's Grotto stands now, and, and the, the tent is still there, you had things like the Briny Boys and a polka band and the Pearly Band. And the Pearly Band was seen in Fantasyland, also seen on Main Street sometimes. And if you think back to the animated sequence of Mary Poppins, the band playing uh, in sort of the equestrian animated scene with the little white pearls on them, they were sort of modeled a- after that. Right. And this, and like you said, you, you had characters wandering around. And with the tournament tent, this is a perfect time for that because we had just released Robin Hood. We had just, Disney had just released Robin Hood. And it, the big scene in that movie was the tournament tent scene. So you had this real life feel. You could go watch the film and then go over to Fantasyland and you could see Robin Hood wandering around, you know, and Friar Tuck and under the tournament tent. Yeah, again, very, you know, it, it looked and must have just felt very different. Because you had these characters, because you had these things, because you had the Skyway going overhead, because you had these two ticket kiosks um, on opposite ends of Fantasyland, sort of on on each of the entrances to the Castle Keep, uh, one over by the Mad Tea Party, the other one uh, sort of right in front of Peter Pan's flight, sort of in between there and where um, the entrance to Pinocchio Village House might be. But talk- and to add to that, you had uh, you know, stores like the Fantasyland Art Festival, the Mad Hatter, Merlin's Magic Shop, the Aristocats Gift Shop, which I, I wonder how many people that's at this point. Yeah, and Merlin's Magic Shop, again, for me, and when we, we talk about Main Street, we'll mention, obviously, my favorite yeah. store, which was the House yeah. of Magic. But Absolutely. Um, there was so much going on in Fantasyland. Um, still... The you know the biggest land obviously what the future is going to hold for finish land now doubles that very different than what you get as you pass the mad tea party and you head on over to Tomorrowland and you probably would have been like well where's the rest that because unlike Fantasyland with ten attractions that were going Tomorrowland very early on not a lot going on there you had the Grand Prix Raceway which was a sea ticket attraction you had the Skyway, which is kind of like half an attraction. Uh, you had, if you had wings, huge, huge love for if you had wings, not just because it was free, not because it was cool, but because I love that attraction. And you had Flight to the Moon and Circle Vision, and that was it. Yeah, I almost started singing, actually, when we went, if you had wings. I can but- bring it up again. If you'll sing, I'll... So let's go back to if you had wings, just from a <laughs> Sponsored by Eastern <laughs> Airlines. Um, you had the harmony part, right? If you <laughs> had wings and wings, yeah. But what you're missing is big pieces of Fantasyland or Tomorrowland. As hey, there there was no Space Mountain in '73. There was no Astro Orbiter or Star. There wasn't even the Wedway, which for people like you, just you hear Wedway and you're like, yes, that's cute. It's not there, right? Right, and, and so imagine walking down the main. Avenue of the with the Avenue of the Stars now towards Tomorrowland. You have Flight to the Moon to your left, which is a D ticket attraction. And again, love that. Love the use of the screens on the floor and the screens up on top. That's where Stitch now stands. To the right, you have Circle Vision 360, sponsored by Monsanto, 
free. You have the two giant white pylons. Again, that the architecture of Tomorrowland was very, very different. And as you look forward, there's nothing. There's no Rocket Tower Plaza. To the left, you'll see the Skyway building, but that's it. I mean, it's done. I mean, maybe in 73, you're starting to see construction of Space Mountain, but you really have not much else going on there. You've got the Tomorrowland Terrace, you've got the lunching pad, and a couple of shops, and that's it. And you and I have gone back and forth talking about this before, but this was why the in Tomorrowland were placed where they were because when the Tomorrowland opened, you had that view into the contemporary, which was you know, state-of-the-art and future and building from there. And, that, and it blended into the surroundings and the environment that you had with these great spires at the beginning of Tomorrowland and the, you know, the skyway and what would be Space Mountain. Right. And so think about it. There's no carousel of progress. I mean, there's nothing on, on that far end. There is no Galaxy Palace Theater. The, the farthest thing that you have out there is the Skyway building and the little shop downstairs and the restroom and Mickey's Mart and the spaceport. So you could pretty much bang out Tomorrowland in like eight minutes. Yeah, this was, you know, I know it was one of those big things when they redid Disneyland, you know, the first when they first really boosted Disneyland, it was Tomorrowland. And it was a very similar feel to. The, the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland, it was like, okay, we have this idea for the future, but it's going to have to take a couple of years. But the one thing you did have here, um, it was not Sunny Eclipse. He was not there <laughs> yet. But you did have a lot of live entertainment in the Tomorrowland Terrace restaurant. Again, at this point, now, mind you, over on the opposite side, you've got the Country Bear Jamboree and the Mile Long Bar spawn- and Pecos Bills sponsored by Pepsi. You have the Tomorrowland Terrace, sponsored by Coca-Cola. Yeah, it was it, it was the beginning of the shift away from Pepsi to Coca-Cola. Very similar in the way you see the park maps. And the camera shop sponsored by GAF when the parks opened, and a couple of years later would be Kodak. But you're right, the, the entertainment around uh, uh, the Tomorrowland Terrace rock band. Yeah. <laughs> just just try, to put a, try to put a rock band in Tomorrowland, and it just I, – I, for me, it looks like the, the Stitch show that we ended up with. Yeah, there was a lot of different things that would take place in Tomorrowland, and not all of them were necessarily futuristic. I mean, they actually had some relative headliners perform there, too, and, and names like Anne Murray came up in my research, and, and the uh, um, different sort of... They had very 70s names, like the something-something spectacular extravaganza <laughs> went on there, but it was... An entertainment venue, much like it is now. We have Sunny Eclipse, but there you had live performers. I mean, we'll talk about Michael Iceberg when we get into the 80s at some point. <laughs> but there was a lot. I mean, that was the one thing that sort of gave you additional reason to eat at Tomorrowland Terrace other than like the blue Gemini burgers and stuff like that. Right. And it was also moving you into Tomorrowland. They wanted you know people in Tomorrowland without a lot to offer. You had to have live entertainment. You had to have the food and such a large space you could sit down cool off and and be entertained while you while you while you eat which is maybe something you wouldn't get from Pinocchio's village house right and notice how it always comes back to the food right uh, of course <laughs> so but i i wanted to end in what for me um you would think as a kid attractions and rides and things like that would be but there has always been something about main street usa that i have just loved and as a kid and maybe it was just the magic shop 
for me, but there was so much about Main Street that I enjoyed. Um, and, and we're actually running longer than I thought because I really wanted to spend a lot of time talking about an attraction that was there. But before we get to that, let's talk about some of those shops because that really is what sort of defines Main Street. And it was not that single emporium on the west side. You had probably 10 different little stores on each side of the street. Things like like you have now. You still have the hat shop and you mentioned the camera center. You did have an emporium and a confectionery, but you also had things like a greenhouse flower shop. Now imagine going to the Magic Kingdom, Ryan, and going flower shopping. Um, interesting. I mean, just an interesting choice of, but again, this was your vacation destination. There was a clock shop. There was a china shop, um, not just selling sort of Mickey and Minnie sort of faux china. I mean, that sold nice and expensive china. Uh, there was another art festival here. There was a market house still to this day, which was uh, at half sponsored by Smuckers. There was a Hallmark card shop. There was also the Wonder, the Wonderland of Wax candle shop. Remember, these are all individual shops on, on Main Street. Uh, the Crystal Arts was still there. There was the Uptown Jewelers, again, still there. Disney and Company. The Silhouette Studio had its own little shop on uh, on one side of the street. And the two most intriguing and of note was the House of Magic. Um, I can see it. I remember it. I remember the masks on the wall, the magician teaching you how to do tricks, and all the little jokes and novelties. And somebody, please remember, I had that little... Got this little plastic coffin with like a King Tut in it. And if you put the magnet in backwards, he levitated. That was like the big thing for me. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing, and, and people don't believe me when I say this and I show them I have a, a, a box from it, was there was a tobacconist shop on Main Street on the west side. And it was, you know, this was back in the 70s before we had a lot of the warnings and before they, they discontinued selling any kind of tobacco products in Walt Disney World. But yeah, you absolutely had a tobacconist. You had, you know, the House of Magic, which I think was, you know, I still play with cards. I still, you know, coin tricks, whatever. Because of because of that magic shop, you know, I could see, you know, the, the green trim and the just the the dark wood. And it was just, yeah, it, it drew me in every time. And, you know, and you had side streets on the street, which really, you know, one now, you know, West Street is gone now because of the Emporium expansion and it moved the Harmony Barbershop down to the front of the of Main Street. It was just a very hustle bustle. And like you said, you know, a dozen stores to explore. And I think it really, and I, I only wish that I was older and had more of um, a recollection, a real-time recollection of what it looked like because I had to imagine because of these types of small, quaint stores and these side little alleyways with the flowers out front and, and the silhouette artist and you know the music going, it must have very much had almost more of that seaside Victorian old world elegance and charm of a, you know, a pre-turn of the century type of expanding and growing town. Yeah, you know, you say that charm, and there's the reason I write for the Main Street Gazette. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, it is, for like, for you, it's that land that, you know, when you think of the Magic Kingdom, the first thing you think of is Main Street and the trains and the windows and the shops and the jitney and the fire truck and all of the, this turn of the century town made, made real again. 
and it just yeah it tugs at the heartstrings and i think too part of what made this even more experiential and believe me i still love main street usa like nothing else uh, in walt disney world and i can and i have spent nothing but a full day there there were things going on on the street and off the street that made that feel more like a town because the cinema was a cinema at that point there was a real penny arcade where the uh, the main street athletic shop and the hall of champions um now sits i mean there was a there was a little bookstore there but you also had many many more vehicles at the time going up and down the street you had the jitney you had the fire engine and the horseless carriage and the horse cars the omnibus you know at the time was just fascinating to me as a kid and i remembered i mean you had to use an a coupon to ride it and again it was more almost an attraction than it was a way to get to to the central plaza you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I can remember the omnibus from the Magic Kingdom, and I can remember the the omnibuses that they ran at the World Showcase Lagoon when Epcot opened for a few. You know, and but beyond that, on Main Street, you had things you know going on like the Walt Disney World Marching Band, the Town Band, the Barbershop Quartet, the Keystone Cop Quartet, and you know, as we see now, you know, at the Refreshment Corner Ragtime Music, which is you know now Casey Corner, but the the Ragtime Music is still playing there. Right. There was a lot, and again, it goes back to what we were saying. A lot of different entertainment that was going on all the time, and and again, we we have things like the Dapper Dans, and we, but not as much, and not as much of of. I mean, you mentioned the Keystone Cops. It was this sort of barbershop quartet dressed like and kids. You can look it up on Google. Keystone Cops. Yeah, I mean the, the variety that that we've seen, even just going through all this, but even just on Main Street. And the amount of entertainment going on, you know, it, it didn't matter if you didn't have, you know, 10 other attractions that we have today. You had so much more pers- person entertainment that, that added to the to your level of enjoyment in the park. Right. And, the, and you still had very similar to what we have now. Like you said, you mentioned the refreshment corners now. Casey's, the Plaza Ice Cream Parlor was there. The bakery obviously was still there. The Crystal Palace was there. One thing you did have was the Crystal Palace one thing you did not have in 1973 no character breakfasts you did not have character meals yet so your your meals at the Crystal Palace were nice they were beautiful no Winnie the Pooh and friends leading Ryan and his family around on parades right and, and you know same goes for at Cinderella Castle King's stuff in the banquet hall you didn't have princesses coming around and you know kissing you on the cheek and saying how lovely you were it was you know, it, this was it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, you, you mentioned the, the movement of the Harmony Barbershop and how things have changed. As we get closer towards Town Square, and I guess we're going to have to keep this for, for a separate segment, you had the Gulf Hospitality House, but you also had there um, an attraction which opens in March 1973, which I want to give it its due, so we won't sort of, but we'll just touch on it now. And that was the Walt Disney story. And if you think that it's just sort of a predecessor to one man's dream, it really is, was not. And it was a very unique and a very different type of a show. And what that space ended up becoming through the years and how that changed through the years, I think is worth mentioning. Because when we went from the Walt Disney story in 73, um, and that eventually goes away and 
Again, there were very, very cool elements to that, and Hoot Gibson and, and some of the things you saw there. It became a preview center. So imagine, as a kid, Ryan, walking into there and seeing some of the things about Epcot Center. You're seeing a film about Epcot Center in the late 80s, getting you excited, and then getting ready for the studios, and getting ready for the Disney's Animal Kingdom. I mean, that was awesome. You know, it's one of those things that makes One Man Dream so interesting is all these exhibits that, that show the history, whereas at the time that we, these were produced and that you saw them at the Preview Center, they were they were amazing pieces of, of, of Walt Disney World. And it went back and forth between the Preview Center and the Walt Disney story for a number of years, which I think speaks to the nature and the quality of the Walt Disney story movie. Yeah, and that building was very different than it was now. I mean, there was no Tony's Town Square at the time. You did have the Town Square Cafe, which was sponsored by Oscar Mayer. But that exposition hall, uh, there was a lot more to a certain degree going on. And you can, if you, you can still see the theaters in the back, one of which, one of the theaters you can't see is blocked off. You can see the mural that's in the back. And again, we'll talk about this some more. But um, again, in, in many respects, Ryan, the Magic Kingdom, very much the same as it is in 2009. In some other respects, very, very different as, opposed, as to what you would have seen and, and what you would have heard. It, it's definitely almost like a bizarro Magic Kingdom. Like You would be able to make your way around. You'd see the pieces that you recognize. But at the same time, it would be just a little off-center. and You wouldn't quite recognize it at the same place it is today. Absolutely, and we didn't even touch on things like, you know, where was Holiday Land? You know, there was talk of <laughs> Holiday Land going yeah. in between uh, Tomorrowland and Fantasyland. Obviously, that never came to be. We have Toontown, well, for a little while longer anyway. Um, <laughs> but even getting outside the Magic Kingdom just a little bit, because we want to sort of talk about 73 as a whole, there was a lot to do outside the theme park, and there needed to be, because this was billed as the vacation kingdom of the world. This was not like Disneyland, where locals were to come and spend a day or maybe stay overnight with their kids. This was where they wanted people to come, because there was not very much going on in Orlando, remember? I think there was Wiki Wachi in Cypress Gardens. I love Wiki Wachi, by the way. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about the mermaid some other time. Anyway, but, so they needed to have things going on to keep you busy, not just during the day, but at night. So, after Dark at Disney, it really took on a new sort of atmosphere because you they really wanted to draw you in. We talked about the entertainment inside the parks. They wanted to draw you in with the entertainment outside the parks. And really, the, the flagship location in all of Walt Disney World was the Top of the World, also known as the Top of the World Supper Club, the Top of the World Dinner Club. But they had shows up there with... I mean, big at the time, headliner acts. And pretend, Ryan, that you know who people like Phyllis McGuire and Mel Torme. The Velvet Fuck. Come on. Mel Torme. No, I got, yeah. <laughs> no, I recognize, I recognize it. I, yeah. And the list goes, what really went on and on. It was an act every night. And I can remember, and this will sound a little, little odd. I can remember my mom telling me about graduating from high school and going to the, uh, the, the top of the world for a couple, you know, for some drinks and to hang out and, you know, that was her celebration because even in Florida at the time, even in Central Florida, it was a big draw. So not only were they pulling 
and locals, they were pulling in people from you know all over the world to say, hey, you can come play in French and, and with the submarines during the day, but at night, this is when you know it takes on a whole life of its own. And this was really geared. I mean, this was a high end, relatively speaking, especially for, listen, an amusement park, which is what Walt Disney World kind of was. I mean, they defined what theme park was. You now had a place where you're getting acts like Mel Torme. You've got to pay a $5 cover charge. Remember, you're only pulling in about twelve grand a year. $5 cover charge. You also had to wear a jacket, which you, other than Victorian Alberts now, you don't see anywhere. I know it was a different time and a place, but that's what they were trying to do with locations like that. You know, and, and similar over at the Polynesian, you had you know, the Polynesian R- Review Luau, which became so popular that in 73, they, they built a covered area for it. Uh, yeah, they definitely were trying to to show that they had world-class entertainment. And I think that they wanted to make the distinction between the family entertainment at things like the Papiete Pay Bay Veranda, because I called it Papit and I got yelled at. So (laughs) now I probably just butchered the Hawaiian language. It's three languages in one show. I apologize to all my Polynesian, French, and Spanish friends. Um, But that was very different than the sort of the adults-only, more sophisticated drinks with jackets up in the top of the World Supper Club. You did have other family dining in the Contemporary. You had places like the Grand Canyon Terrace Restaurant in the Grand Canyon Concourse. Um, You also had places specifically for kids. And this is what I remember. This is what I take with me when I think back. And it's not my parents abandoning me in the arcade, but I remember spending... (laughs) Hours and hours in the arcade in what is now sort of the location of the wave on the ground floor of the Contemporary. And they had a movie theater there. I remember seeing movies there. It was called the Sunshine State Exhibitorium. But they played first-run movies every night there. And I, you know, and I remember it very distinctly from my time as a child. And if I don't mention Fort Wilderness at least ten times you know, in any conversation, I, I lose my Fort Wilderness card. But I can remember – taking the boat specifically over from Fort Wilderness to the Contemporary to be in the Fiesta Fun Center and to play at the arcade and to see the movies. And it was, it was extraordinary. Yeah, and, and that was the thing. I mean, I think if we look back, we see so many things that were so very, very unique. And obviously the Polynesian at the time, really, I think to a certain degree, Ryan, and we've talked about this on the show in the past too, helped to define what a themed resort was going to be. I mean, hotels didn't look like that unless they were in Hawaii. They looked like traditional, you know, high-rise or low-rise hotels or motels. And they have something unique above and beyond the luau. They have something, and I've done a a blog post about this in the past, called the Eastern Winds, which was an Mm -hmm. authentic Chinese junk. I mean, imagine this, seeing this on the Seven Seas Lagoon, an authentic Chinese junk where you can go out you can have dinner. You can have cocktails. So again, that that separation of the family experience. So you can have the babysitting services for your kids uh, in the Fiesta Fun Center and go see movies while you and your wife or your friends or your business partners, whatever it is, go out on the eastern winds, on the Chinese junk. And if you happen to catch maybe uh, the electrical water pageant, if you time it just right, very, very unique experiences. Yeah, and they were, you know, they, they, they wanted to take the theme of these resorts and take them up a notch. And, you know, they had so many great ideas for the future, you know, with the, the Persian, the Venetian, you know, all these different ideas of resorts they were going to build. 
considered the contemporary, and it was only a few months, or the Polynesian, but for only a few months, had a wave machine because they wanted to give you that surfing experience. You know, you could let the kids sit on the beach or get a boogie board, and you go hang tin in the middle of a Florida swamp, effectively. Yeah, and really, even in its very early stage, and that's why I kind of wanted to, to talk about Walt Disney World as a whole and sort of take a snapshot in, in 1973 as much as we could because they very early on had shown this was going to be something unlike anything you saw anywhere else, even above and beyond what they were doing out in Disneyland because they had all of this land and all of the experience. And I'm not saying they made mistakes in Disneyland, but they learned what they could do to improve upon it and take advantage of the size and the space and the resources and the advances in technology. And from day one, Ryan, it's just been such an amazing and immersive thing. And you really get that here because, again, unlike Disneyland, when you step through those gates, whether it's getting onto property or the gate to the Magic Kingdom, you are completely immersed into this land where sort of fantasy and reality very much overlap. Yeah, and and you're you're right. You know, Walt said they had the blessing of size in Florida, and it's it's true. You know, they any dream they could think of, they they said, you know, we're going to throw it at the wall and see what sticks and see what we can do. They worked so hard to create stories and then immerse you in them, and I I think the quality really shows. I, you know, I really thought that if they could dream it, they could do it. You know, I like the sound of that. It, I like the, it, it I like has the, the ring to it. It's, 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 it's catchy. I don't know. Maybe they should make that into, into a song, put it in an attraction somewhere. Why don't, you, why don't you belt something out for us? No, but I, you know what? I, I've heard you sing the other one. Never mind. Um, oh. But I would – listen. I, I would love to hear other people's experiences or memories or share photographs or share videos, whatever it might be. Please, you can email me at lou at wdwradio.com. I'll post whatever you'd like to share on the show notes where you can post them on the fan page over on Facebook. You can call the voicemail 888-703-2171 and tell us about maybe some of your memories of Disney World, maybe even specifically in 1973. And uh, as always, Ryan, man, you you know I love taking these trips back in time with you. Um, You can stay back in time and look forward if you head on over and check out Ryan's awesome blog over at MainStreetGazette.com. It's Main stgazette.com and uh, we'll have to do this again we'll have to pick another time and date and, uh, and set the Wayback Machine back and uh, it's going to be interesting to see Walt Disney World as they start adding theme parks yeah I hear, I hear they have something going on down the street and it may even involve a monorail ride I don't know we'll have to, we'll have to wait and see but it's always a pleasure to be here is that Wiki Watchy? are you talking about Wiki Watchy again? I think it's something like that yeah <laughs> thanks a lot buddy oh no problem That's going to do it for this week's show. I hope you enjoyed our trip aboard the Walt Disney World Wayback Machine to 1973. Thanks to Ryan Wilson from Main Street Gazette. Go check out his blog at mainstgazette.com. And big, big thanks go out to all of you this week as well because of your incredible support. 
I'm happy to announce that WDW Radio has been nominated for a podcast award this year over at podcastawards.com. The show was nominated in the travel category for best travel podcast. And this is really where we need your help because beginning November 13th, which is Friday, you can go to podcastawards.com and vote for WDW Radio in the travel category. It's at the very bottom of the page, and WDW Radio is actually the last entry in the travel category all the way down on the right-hand side. All you need to do is go to podcastawards.com and vote for the show once per day until November 30th. Remember, you can and should vote once every day until Monday, November 30th. It's important, actually, that you vote every day because this year there are 10 shows nominated with some very, very impressive company, which really makes it an honor to be nominated this year. Also, when you go cast your vote, please go and support Clinton over that The Comedy Forecast in the comedy category, another very well-deserved nomination for him and his show. I'm going to post a link on WDWRadio.com. I'll also try and give you some gentle reminders via Facebook and Twitter as well. Please feel free to let others know. Encourage them to vote as well. Also, very important that you put in a valid email address as you're going to have to confirm your vote via email confirmation link that is sent to you after you submit it. And remember, guys, no matter the outcome, I want to thank all of you again for the nomination. I really am truly honored I'm humbled by this. You guys are the best. I love all of you, and I really do appreciate all of the support. Speaking of you guys, you know how much I love meeting all of you. Don't forget that the next Meet of the Month in Walt Disney World is going to be Saturday, November 14th. It's going to be at 2 o'clock in the afternoon over at Ariel's Grotto at the Festival Tent over in Fantasyland. You can visit the Facebook event page or the forums. Let us know that you're coming, although, of course, no RSVP is required come early come late we'll be there for probably two three hours so please at least come by and say hi in september the meet of the month is going to be friday december 11th and although i haven't locked down the exact location and time as yet it will be something probably right outside the parks for the people that don't have passes also i will do it early enough in the evening or late enough in the afternoon so that if you are going to plan on going to mickey's very merry christmas party i will certainly give you enough time for that On Sunday, December 13th, Celebrations Magazine is going to have our very first meet. That's going to be in France in World Showcase at 2 p.m. by the Gardens. Again, links in the show notes to the forums, the Facebook event pages. We'd love it if you RSVP'd. Let us know that you're coming. And if you are going to be around that weekend, Tim Foster and I from Guide to the Magic and Celebrations Magazine, we're going to be having a table over at the NFFC Show and Sale That's going to be at the Regal Sun Resort. That's going to be on Saturday afternoon. I'll put details and links to that as well. There's lots of Disneyana collectibles and merchandise and authors and podcasters going to be there. A lot of fun. If you are a Disney collector, definitely come by and check that out. Again, best way to keep up with everything that's going on over at WDW Radio. Please come by. Join the fan page over on Facebook. You can also friend me up personally there. Follow my updates on Twitter. That's twitter.com slash Lumangelo. Again, links to all these right on the homepage of WDWRadio.com. I am very, very excited 
about our cruise on the Disney Dream in 2011. Bookings for the general public are going to begin on Monday, November 9th. So it's important that you get your booking form in as soon as possible because we're not sure how quickly this sailing may so sell out. So I suggest if you're interested, getting your form in. Remember, you can get a full refund of your deposit up until late next year. So if you're thinking about it, if you're kind of on the fence about joining us, I'd get that form in as soon as possible. More information, deck plans, photos, videos, virtual tours, and the booking form is available over at www.radiocruise.com. Also, don't forget, last week's show was all about the brand new Disney Dream cruise ship and more details about the cruise as well. Now, I've half-joked for a while now that I need either a taller, smarter, better-looking clone or some real assistance. And since the former doesn't seem to be happening, it looks like I could really use some help. So if you want to volunteer and be part of the WDW radio team, I've set up a page on the site where you can go and find out more about the positions that I'm actually looking for help in and submit your information. We're going to be accepting submissions up until December 15th for anybody that's interested. I'm going to post a link in the show notes this week to the form. Again, it'll also list the exact kind of uh, roles that I'm looking for specific help in. Thank you guys in advance for any help you can provide. I really do appreciate it because you know I'm always trying to continually improve the show and what I can deliver for you. Speaking of delivering for you, nice segue, Lou, I'll have more videos up on WDW Radio and YouTube this week. Don't forget, if you do, and you should, subscribe to the show in iTunes. They will automatically be downloaded as they are released. You can play them via iTunes on your iPod or your iPhone. Also, don't forget, on the website, you can still get signed copies of my Walt Disney World trivia books, audio guides to Walt Disney World, and you can get a link over to Celebrations Magazine that you can subscribe you can order back issues, and if you want to contribute an article, a letter, a photo, anything at all, please go by and visit celebrationspress.com. As I've been saying, I've got a lot of things that I'm going doing backstage and that I'm juggling over at wdwradio.com that I will be announcing over the next few weeks and months. Definitely stay tuned for that. If you are a new listener, please go back, check out older episodes on the site or in iTunes. Most of the episodes, not really time-specific, Hopefully you'll find something there that you enjoy. All the episodes are always available. If you want to be part of the show, you want to get on the air, the easiest way is simply to call into the WDW Radio voicemail at 888-703-2171 with your comments, suggestions, reviews, reports, or if you just want to say hello from the parks. And if you have a question that you want answered on the show, you can email me at lou at wdwradio.com. Stay tuned for a WDW Radio Live coming very, very soon, I promise. That's a real interactive video chat where I'll be broadcasting live audio and video. You can come in to the text chat, ask questions, talk to me and other listeners. Again, best way to find out when that's going to happen. Stay tuned to Facebook and Twitter and the forums over at WDW Radio. Big thanks, as always, to my partners and sponsors, including Mouse Fan Travel, they are my official and recommended travel provider for all your vacation planning needs, whether it is Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Adventures by Disney, or Disney Cruise Line. Hint, hint, come with us in 2011 on the Disney Dream. Becky and her team of agents will give you the best possible prices and discounts with the amazing level of personal service that is their hallmark. 
With more than 150 vacation homes within just a couple of miles of Walt Disney World, go visit Sarah and her team over at allstarvacationhomes.com. They have everything from two-bedroom condos up to seven-bedroom homes. I'm actually going to be staying with my family in a, in a uh, vacation home for our upcoming trip this week. Really looking forward to that. And finally, if you are looking to buy or sell Disney Vacation Club points via resale, go and visit Chantel and her team over at dvcbyresale.com. To comment on or talk about the show or anything Disney-related with other WDW Radio listeners, please visit the forums over at wdwradio.com. It's fun. It's free. We're a very, very welcoming community. Come on by and be a member of the WDW Radio family. And if you like the show, please... Help spread the word, let others know about it, review the show on iTunes, and if you can, remember to vote every day between November 13th and November 30th for the show over at podcastawards.com. And of course, my friends, most importantly, I want to say thank you for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. I really do appreciate it. I hope you guys have a fantastic week this week. Remember to always keep moving forward and take that first step to following your dream. Have a great week, everybody. See ya. Hi, Lou. It's Darlene Nagy from Western New York, Buffalo. Um, I just wanted to call to tell you that I have made my call to MEI uh, travel for the cruise. I'm so excited that my husband had his vacation rotation when you are planning the cruise. So we are all set and in. Hopefully we get our room picked. That would be great. Um, Really looking forward to going on a cruise with all of you. Uh, It's going to be a great time. I'm so excited. Thanks for doing this, Lou. You're awesome. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Have a magical day. Hey, Lou. Glenn Blankenship from Coleman, Alabama. Just calling to say that it was great to hear... Uh, Tim Foster on the program again. I love the top ten with ten segments. And I love that there's more than ten. So don't worry about renaming it and don't worry about keeping it any shorter. Uh, Y'all do a great job on the top ten list. And I absolutely love them. That's probably my favorite segment on the WDW radio show. And I appreciate it. I appreciate Tim. Thanks a lot. Hi, this is Renee from Fort Collins, Colorado. And I've been waiting until I catch... Uh, got caught up on all the shows to leave a message, but I had to give a call when I heard in show uh, 140 Jim Corcus's shout-out to uh, Fort Collins because that's one of my favorite pieces of trivia, the fact that a lot of Main Street was designed to look like Fort Collins. I grew up with those buildings, and that's part of why Main Street feels a lot like home to me, too. So um, The other one that I wanted to call back about was you had talked about Disney dreams and Disney goals, and I have kind of a practical one that I'm going to try and make happen at the end of this year. I'm back in school right now getting my master's degree in violin performance, but I'm hoping at the end of this year to go ahead and do the college program and go and get to work at Disney for a while. I'd love to be a face character if I can get that to work out. I'd also like to be a ride operator or really just do anything down there that I can. Um, And kind of in the future and kind of a far-off dream goal, I would love to be able to... uh, work with the students at the Magic Music Days. Um, being an orchestra teacher, it would be such a great experience to be able to be down there and working with the kids and just get to have that impact all the time. So uh, thanks so much. I love everything that you do, and I'm so happy to get to listen to you every time I'm commuting. So thanks. Bye. 
Hey, Lou, it's James calling from Pickering, Ontario, Canada, uh, also known as Disney North Online. I left a message a couple of weeks ago. Uh, just listened to your November 1st podcast about the Disney Cruise, and it sounds awesome. I haven't been on a Disney Cruise before, and I'm uh, looking for a reason to go on, and in your, uh, the, uh, Walt Disney, the Walt Disney World Radio uh, group cruise sounds fantastic. I just got to talk my wife into it now, so wish me luck on that. Uh, I just want also wanted to make a comment about your podcast from the week before about um, things that you miss in Walt Disney World. And, and the w- things that I miss, that they're not really attraction or ride per se. Uh, well, one is, one would probably be the Main Street Cinema. Uh, I, I really loved going in there and, and just standing there and watching a couple of you know, a couple of minutes of uh, clips from the old Disney cartoons, especially Steamboat Willie, because at the time, really, there was nowhere to be able to, you know, to see it. Uh, they were, I don't believe it was on VHS, and it was long before DVD, so that was that was something that was really, really neat to do. Um, the, the other thing I really miss is the Centorium at Epcot, which is now Mouse Gears. Uh, at the time, it was great. I thought it was fantastic, just all the different levels that they had with all the different merchandise, and uh, seeing all the figment merchandise was just fantastic. I wish I could go back in time and buy all that stuff up. Um, and which leads to my third item that I really, really miss in the parks, and that is park-specific merchandise. You know, it's great to be able to go to any of the stores and any of the parks to pick up the merchandise, even to go down to downtown Disney and get the stuff. But I really, really miss the stuff that was specific to a park and that was the only place you could get it uh i you know it was almost like a a scavenger hunt or a treasure hunt to say hey look at this item oh i can only get this in epcot oh i gotta get it here get it now uh but that's the collector in me so uh keep up the great work and hopefully we'll see you in february 2011 thanks hey lou how you doing this is randy from shawnee kansas uh 37 days till we leave for disney world very excited um, hey, I want to tell you a story I thought you might find funny. Uh, last year, my sister and I were at Disney World, and we were on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, and we just kind of overheard these two guys talking to these two girls, and they were talking about how they liked Disney World because, you know, so many of the rides were based on movies, like Snow White ride and the Peter Pan ride. And one of the girls looked around at the, just kind of looked around, and she said, well, Pirates of the Caribbean, I wonder how long, how old this ride is. And the guy turns to his girlfriend and says, well, can't be that old. The movie's only about ten years, or about about ten years or so. And uh, I just thought that was kind of funny. Anyway, Lou, love your show, and we'll see you in thirty-seven days. Bye, Lou. Hey, Mr. Mangello. Um, my name's Andrew Wilhelm. I live in Maryland. Um, I, I first off, I just want to tell you that I really do love your show, and um, I just finished listening to the uh, August sixteenth one where you guys were top ten cues. And um, I wasn't going to mention to this till uh, your guest mentioned the. Uh, Transit Authority being the uh, queue for Space Mountain, I mean, for uh, Tomorrowland. But I've always noticed that, I've always kind of thought of Main Street USA as kind of like the queue to the Magic Kingdom, because when you go there, there's just something about walking up the uh, Main Street USA that it's like, whoa, I'm actually here in Disney World, and it's really just a great feeling. Anyway, uh, thanks for taking my call. 